let us sing for joy. Shout out loud with a voice of praise. Come, let us give Him thanks. Worship Him with our music and song. For the Lord is great. For the Lord is great. So come, let us bow. Oh, come, let us bow down and worship. Come, let us kneel. Oh, come, let us kneel at His throne. But He is our God. Lift up your voices and
morning, Carpenter's Way. Once you guys get up on your feet, let's find somebody and tell them good morning. shelter in you my God and there you give me rest you are my refuge and my safe place my strength is in your name and though I stumble you won't let me fall you hold me in your
Well, good morning, everybody. It is uh, so good to see you on this gorgeous weekend. It is always fun this time of year as people travel around, and uh, it's exciting to have Carpenter's Way alumni that God moves on to come back and visit with us. And I, I never do this, but the Iversons, it's so good to have you here. Uh, Ian and Loretta, good welcome back home. They live in Dallas. That's a small town that way. So it's what? It's north. It doesn't matter. They got a football team or something there, don't they? But, uh, man, it's so good to have you guys. I, I never call people out, but I'm calling you out today. Welcome, welcome home. Their son, wanted, how old is your son? He's going to be 11, and for his birthday, he wanted to come back to Lufkin. Yeah. Yeah, how cool is that? Well, anyway, welcome home, you guys. and uh, Make sure you love on him. It's good to see you back. And thanks for being here this morning. If you're watching on the Internet, we're glad to have you with us. And our hope and our prayers that we can encourage you. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 19 this morning, 19 and 20. So uh, you'll want to grab a Bible and turn to with us there. And if you're here in the room and you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. And, and uh, we'll be there in a little while. If you'll open your worship guides, I do have a few things I want to announce. But first, let me again welcome you. Uh, if you're new to Carpenter's Way, our hope and our prayer is that you're encouraged in your relationship with God. Uh, we're honored that you're here, and, and we certainly want, us to, want you to like us, but we want you to fall in love with Jesus, and we want to start by thanking you. Um, for uh, Carpenter's Way folks, I want to highlight a few things. First of all, last week, Pastor Robert, who is in charge of our missions, shared uh, some mission things going on last week. In an insert, it has all of the missionaries that we presently support in, as a church individually. Beyond that, uh, your gifts support the uh, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. That represents about 6,000 missionaries internationally that evangelize and plant churches globally, and that is uh, how we extend our reach uh, by being involved with these groups. Uh, we put this in here so that you not only know, but so you can pray for these groups uh, the, and these individuals. So please keep that, put that on your refrigerator, and as uh, you, the Lord brings them to mind, take some time to pray for those folks. Uh, and each other. You've got an insert in there. Um, let me highlight a few things uh, as well that's upcoming. Um, there is, on May 20th, is a, our annual uh, Second Wind Retiree Recognition Service. That's our graduation service for our high school students. And uh, if you have a kid that's, that's uh, a part of Carpenter's Ways Ministries and is going to be graduating this year, we need your information and photos by the 9th of May. So you need to be working ahead on that. Usually around the 11th, some parents go, oh, was that due? So I'm officially informing you to please get that stuff in. If you have any questions, you can call the office or you can talk to uh, Mark Dubose or Jeff Bonin, and they'd be glad to answer your questions. Um, also, I want to mention that uh, next Sunday morning, we have a very important 11 o'clock meeting. Uh, we have some very exciting things that we, the elders and the finance team, want to pre present to you. So you'll want to make sure you are here. Even if you're not a member of Carpenter's Way, plan on joining us. Uh, you're going to hear some things that we're looking forward to doing as a church. And uh, again, that's next Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Um, and uh, so now you've been warned about that as well. And if you watch on the Internet, it would be a good Sunday for you to visit with us in person uh, so you can hear that because it won't be on the Internet. Um, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time as we prepare for our offering. If you are visiting with us this morning, that is, if this is not your home church, we'd ask that you just pass the plate as it comes by. We do not want you distracted by money. Uh, we want you focused on the Lord. We're just honored to have you here this morning. And uh, um, so... As they take their place, we're about to pray. John, I understand you are a grandfather again. A great... 
It's grandfather and great-grandfather, so many of them. So make sure you, cel you celebrate with him as well. It's great-grandfather. That's right. Okay. All right. Let's pray. I love Carpenter's way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your goodness to us and just how you bless us for being together and with you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you when friends come and visit. And, and uh, Lord, we've missed the Iversons, and we're thankful that they care enough to want to take a Sunday morning and be with us. And I pray they'll be encouraged having been here. And Lord, those watching on the internet and the others in this room, Father, this is a reunion of sorts for our family uh, every week. And uh, we ultimately need to hear from you. We need your spirit to encourage us. But I want to thank you for the gift of each other. And I pray that we would take advantage of that. Uh, Lord, as we uh, take an offering now um, to continue the work we're doing here as well as elsewhere, uh, I pray that we'd be joyful givers and give back because you've given so much, and frankly, you own it all. So um, just thank you again. I, I, I thank you for how you take care of us. If we seek your kingdom, that all these things take care of themselves, and thank you that we can put our hope and our trust in you. So we commit the rest of the service to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Stand and worship with us, you can. A thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleasing that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Oh, and I sing many searching for Perfect in all of your ways. 
can hardly think as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still into love 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 you're a good good father to you are to you are to you are
Let's talk to let's talk to the Blessed Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for you. There is nobody like you. Not our parents, not our spouses. Nobody would be as forgiving. Nobody would be as loving. Nobody is as merciful and benevolent. Nobody chases us like you do. Nobody nobody is is as long suffering as you are. And nobody, after all we've done, would die on the cross for us. Only you. And that makes you holy or unique or different. So, Father, I pray that this morning as we get into your word, that you would help us to see that not only have you given us yourself, you've given us something else to encourage us, to spur us on, to keep us going. And I just pray that you would uh, drill this deeply into our souls because I believe that this is the thing that Satan most wants to keep us from. So thank you for your word. Thank you for how practical it is. Thank you that we can dive into it right now without fear of being arrested. So uh, change us, Father. Change us and make us more like you. Holy Trinity, we love you. Amen. As we've been talking about and we saw specifically last week, unbridled jealousy turns to hatred and eventually takes control of our lives like a cancer that's just running rampant within us. Saul, the king of Israel, Israel's first human king, is out of control in his jealousy, resentment, and now hatred for, king, or for David. And only because the Lord's blessing is upon this young man, and the people as a result of God's blessing is, are growing in admiration for him that began with his defeat of Goliath. This uh, king Saul has already tried to kill David twice or arrange circumstances in which he would be killed, and has failed at both. Rather than seeing God's hand of protection over David and his waywardness and running to God, he doubles down on his rage. And this is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was planning. Tomorrow morning, he warned him, you must find a hiding place out in the fields. I'll ask my father to go out there with me, and I'll talk to him about you. Then I'll tell you everything I can find out. Jonathan and David had become the best of friends immediately after David beat, defeats Goliath. You'll recall that Jonathan himself has seen his father's unhinged nature in that his father actually told him to his face, I'm going to kill you. Not only that, 
But you may also recall uh, that uh, Jonathan kind of mocks his father's leadership to other, to other warriors when he says, what has my father done now after he gave the command that his warriors were not to eat until all the Philistines were killed? We're going to find in today's text that two things are about to be uh, learned by Jonathan. First, that his influence over his father that he thought he had simply didn't exist. And he's going to learn second that his father is actually more evil and messed up than he imagined. After being told by his dad to kill David, Jonathan decides to try to calm his father down and mediate between David and his father. And we pick it up in verse 4. The next morning, Jonathan spoke about with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan said. He's never done anything to harm you. He has always helped you in any way that he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill a Philistine giant and how the Lord brought great victory to all of Israel as a result? You were certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder, take note of his words, why should you murder an innocent man like David? There's no reason for it at all. So Saul listened to Jonathan and vowed, now take note, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. This is interesting in the Hebrew because Saul actually invokes the name Yahweh. He actually swears to, to, Jehovah's, to Jehovah God that as long as he's alive, as long as God's alive, he's not going to touch King Saul, or David. He's not King David, I keep saying that yet. Verse 7, afterward, Jonathan called David and he told him what had happened. Then he brought David to Saul and David served in his court as before. War broke out again after that, and this is sometime later. And David led his troops against the Philistines. He attacked them with such fury that they all ran away. We believe that David was about 30 or 35 years old now at this time. Verse 9. One day, when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, which is kind of weird for a king to sit with a spear in his hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord, take note that God is still orchestrating, suddenly came upon him. As David played his harp, Saul hurled the spear at David, but David dodged out of the way and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. So much for promises to God, right? So much for his word. This is the third time that Saul has tried to pin this boy to the wall and the third time he's failed. And this time though, David's not gonna stay around to see if he tries again. Verse 11, then Saul sent troops out to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. But Michael, David's wife, remember the second daughter of Saul? Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead by morning. Even his kids know how unhinged he is now. Verse 12, so she helped him climb out through the window, and he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol and put it in his bed, covered it with blankets, and put a cushion of goat's hair on his head. He must not have been as handsome as we thought. Verse 14, when the troops came to arrest David, she told them he was sick and couldn't get out of bed. But Saul sent the troops back to get David. He ordered, bring him to me in his bed so I can kill him. That's what it looks like to be nuts with hate. But when they, can, when they came to carry David out, they discovered that it was only an idol in the bed with a cushion of goat's hair on its head. Why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape, Saul demanded of Michael. I had to, she replied. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him couple questions for me that I was thinking about that I, I want to throw out there. Number one, why does Michael have a life-sized idol in her house? <laughs> Especially when God had clearly instructed, you will have no other gods but me, remember? So it tells us about her spiritual health. 
She's about as spiritually healthy as her father. Second of all, her behavior reflects that. Because why, uh, why does she say that David threatened her when in fact he didn't? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So David escaped and went to Ramah to see Samuel. And he told him all that Saul had done to him. Then Samuel took David with him to live in Naoth. This will begin now a 10-year exile for David running for his life from King Saul. And I want to remind you why this is happening. Because God called him to be the next king. If he was not to be the next king, if God's anointing and blessing had not been put upon him, if he had not entrusted the Lord, taken on Goliath, and after that, shown to be a great warrior and filled with the Holy Spirit as the next king and defeating all of his enemies, none of this would have happened. This is the result of God's calling on his life. In case you're missing it, David fulfilling God's task in his life is not having fun. And he really has no clue what to do. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes to tell God's man, Samuel, the man who anointed him to be the next king, what's going on to seek wisdom. You ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like there you were, minding your own business, raising your family, doing your duty, serving and worshiping God faithfully, and all of a sudden, this thing happens to you. And now you're not having fun because it seems like you're in harm's way, and you did nothing of your own volition to be there. Ever feel like that? David did. In fact, I've been telling you lately that one of the cool things, Bible study technique, if you want to study the New Testament letters and find out what Paul's thinking while he writes the, the, these, these uh, Pauline pastoral epistles, Study Acts along with it. And when he goes into the community, when he gets to Ephesus, go read the, the letter to the church of Ephesus. It'll connect for you. It's a pretty cool study. Well, in the same way, as I've been telling you in recent weeks, we have the insights of David, and some of them are written during these periods. In fact, during this period, David writes Psalm 59. When he goes to his home and Saul sends these warriors to kill him, this is what David is thinking. Psalm 59, I'm just going to read it for you. Rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. Rescue me from these criminals. Save me from these murderers. They have set an ambush for me. Fierce enemies are out there waiting, Lord, though I have not sinned or even offended them. I've done nothing wrong, yet they prepare to attack me. Wake up! Do you see what is happening? And help me! O Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, wake up and punish those in hostile nations. Ever feel like that? Keep reading. Show no mercy to wicked traitors, David writes. They come out at night snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. Listen to the filth that comes from their mouths. Their words are cut like swords. After all, who can hear us, they sneer. But the Lord, but Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at hostile nations. You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me. For you, O God, are my fortress. In his unfailing love, God will, will stand with me. He will not let me look down in triumph on my enemies. Don't kill them, for my people soon forget such lessons. Stagger them with your power and bring them to your knees, O Lord, our shield. So now he's praying that they're not killed. That, that's going to be important here. Because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that is on their lips, let them be captured by their pride, their curses, and their lies. Destroy them with your, uh, in your anger. Wipe them out completely. Then the whole world will know that God reigns in Israel. Remember, he said that once before when he's taking Goliath on. 
My enemies come out at night snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food, but go to sleep unsatisfied. But as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love, for you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. O my strength to you, I sing praises, for you, O God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love. And all of this is written right during this time. You see the imagery? You feel what he's feeling. Have you felt that before? That was David's prayer as these warriors came to kill him. Even in his dismay, he declares God his refuge. You want to know what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart? It doesn't look like a life of tr no trouble. It doesn't even look like a life that's not afraid or confused or frustrated. But it always returns to trusting in the Lord. 1 Samuel 19, verse 19. When the report uh, reached Saul that David was in Noeth in Ramah, he sent troops to capture him. But when they arrived, and Saul Samuel leading a group of prophets who were prophesying, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also began to prophesy. When Saul heard what had happened, he sent other troops, and they too prophesied. The same thing happened a third time. Finally, when completely out of control, I added that. Frustrated, I added that. Saul himself went to Ramah and arrived at the great well in Siku. Where, the, where, uh, where are Samuel and David, he demanded. There at Naoth in Ramah, someone told him. But on the way to Naoth in Ramah, the Spirit of the Lord came even upon Saul. And he too began to prophesy all the way to Naoth. He tore off his clothes when he gets there, and he lays naked on the ground all day and all night, prophesying in the presence of Samuel. The people who are watching said, What? Is even Samuel a prophet? This is the second time we've heard that. Saul, sorry. Is even Saul. Thank you for correcting me. Don't do that. <laughs> Standing against the Lord's anointed. That's what he meant. <laughs> I mean, this is an incredible story. David prays. David prays that God doesn't just kill him, but that he avenges himself and shows his power. And that's what happens here. I don't want you to miss this. It is important that we stop, take a breath, and realize that God does not protect David from his troubling time. David wanted this to go away, like we all do. But God doesn't take it away. Instead, while not removing the trouble, God actually protects David in a godlike, weird way. I mean, who would have ever guessed that God would take the murderers, the wicked, the evil, and turn them into actual prophets for this moment? The trouble's still there, but God chooses to sustain David because he has work for him to do in the future. That's why he sustains David. So why God has Saul pinned to the ground prophesying naked in the middle of this town David runs off again to find answers for help. Uh, now look, I know we know these passages, I know we know most of these stories, some of us, but I want you not to miss what's really, really going on in the heart of these people. David is in full panic mode. Yes, he trusts the Lord, but he still doesn't get it because he runs from person to person. He starts by going home. His ungodly wife saves him by encouraging him to leave. He runs to the next place he knows to go, the prophet Samuel. While he's there, Saul comes chasing. Now he runs off again. Verse, chapter 20, verse 1. Now David fled from Naoth in Ramah and found Jonathan, king's son. What have I done, he exclaimed. What's my crime? 
How have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? That's the questions of a guy in panic who wants to solve this terrible problem. Verse 2. That's not true, Jonathan protested. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. Remember how I said at the beginning that Jonathan was going to learn some things about his father? Verse 3. Then David took an oath before Jonathan. And he said, your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? But I swear to you that I am only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. So David, in full panic mode, while still trusting the Lord or crying out to the Lord, swears to God and Jonathan to impact him. I mean, he's really, really emphasizing he's right. Verse 4. Tell me what I can do to help you, Jonathan exclaimed, realizing that David's serious. It's not just a freak-out moment. David replied, verse 5, Tomorrow we celebrate the New Moon Festival. I have always eaten with the king on this occasion, but tomorrow I'll hide in the field and stay there until evening of the third day. If your father asks where I am, tell him I'm, I'm asked permission to go home to Bethlehem for an annual family sacrifice. If he says, fine, you'll know all is well. <clears throat> but if he's angry and loses his temper, you will know that he is determined to kill me. Show me this loyalty as sworn my uh, show me this loyalty as my sworn friend, for we made a solemn pact before the Lord, or kill me yourself, if I have sinned against your father. But please, don't betray me to him. Never, Jonathan exclaimed. You know that if I had the slightest notion my father was planning to kill you, I would tell you at once. Then David asked, How will I know whether or not your father's angry? Come out to the field with me, Jonathan replied, and they went out to there together. Then Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow or the next day at latest, I will, talk, I, I will talk to my father and let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably about you, I'll let you know. But if he is angry and wants to kill you, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so you may escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. All right. Now, in chapter 21, you're going to realize emphatically, without any doubt, that Jonathan knows that David is going to be the next king. But you're going to see some pretty large clues in here that I think he's aware, and this is the first one. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. Verse 14. And may you treat me with the, unfaith, uh, with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die... Treat my family with this, unfail, uh, with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, May the Lord destroy all your enemies. You do realize that Jonathan has a lot to gain if his father's successful. If his father's successful and kills David, then Jonathan becomes the next king. But the wording here, most theologians believe, May the Lord destroy all your enemies is a phrase that a, that a servant would make to his king. It is believed by the things that are being said here that Jonathan already has a strong clue that David is to be the next king of this nation and is asking him to show favor on himself and his children as he protects him. Verse 17. Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said, Tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival. You will be missed when your place at the table is empty. The day after tomorrow, toward even, go to the place where you hid before and wait there by a stone pile. 
I will come out and I will shoot three oils, oils, three arrows. I'm having a hard time reading today. Three arrows to the side of the stone pile as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy to bring the arrow, arrows back. If you hear me tell him they're on this side, then you will know as surely as the Lord lives that all is well and there's no trouble. But if I tell him, go farther, the arrows are still ahead of you, then it will mean that you must leave immediately for the Lord is sending you away. You catch that? Not save yourself, the Lord is sending you away. The difference between Saul and David and Jonathan are not that they believe God is real, but two of them believe God's in control. Verse 23, And may the Lord make, it, uh, make us keep our promises to each other, for he has witnessed them. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon festival began, the king sat down to eat. He sat at his usual place against the wall, with Jonathan sitting opposite him and Abner beside him. Just a side note. Why do you think they point out he's sitting against the wall? Where does a warrior always sit against the wall? Why? Because he's afraid of somebody finding his back. This is a guy who's scared. Verse 26. Saul didn't say anything about it that day, for he said to himself, something must have made David a ceremonial unclean. But when David's place was empty again the next day, Saul asked Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse been here for the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan replied, well, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem, he said. Please let me go, for we're having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there, so please let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore. Yeah, I, I just want to point out that that's actually a slam against Jonathan's mother. Just so you know, it's worse for the mom than it is for Jonathan. And, you know, it's kind of a weird thing to say. You stupid son of a whore, he swore at him. Do you think that I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, You'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. That's what it looks like to be unhinged. But why should he be put to death, Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. He's at dinner still with his spear at his side. So at last Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. Jonathan left the table in fierce anger and refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior toward David. The next morning, as agreed, Jonathan went out to the field and took a young boy with him to gather arrows. Start running, he told the boy, so you'll find the arrows as I shoot them. So the boy ran, and Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy had almost reached the arrow, Jonathan shouted, The arrow is still ahead of you! Hurry! Hurry! Don't wait! So the boy quickly gathered up the arrows and ran back to his master. He, of course, suspected nothing. Only Jonathan and David understood the signal. Then Jonathan gave his bow and arrows to the boy and told him to take them back to town. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan, his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us, and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to town. It was worse than Jonathan had ever imagined it was. As you ponder the story, 
I want you to remind you once again that the cause of all this is God calling David to a task. That's what started all this, this, this wave of hatred and murderous activity. Saul had turned his back on God, and it wasn't going to change now. But David's son Solomon would write this later. We make our plans, but God determines our steps. I keep coming back to that because I want you to understand that <coughs> we are, in fact, the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. We have been tooled together and retooled as his kids, as his workers, for a task. And God will fulfill that task in us and through us. And there's training. And there's difficulty. We think we know. David thought he understood. Jonathan thought he understood. But only God really knew. Which is why Solomon also wrote Proverbs 20, 24. The Lord directs our steps. So why try to understand everything along the way? That's a very, very interesting proverb. Because most of us like to throw verses at each other or say, say things like, you'll understand someday, but what if we don't? What if God in his sovereignty chooses not to tell us why things happen? Throughout this story, David is trying to understand what he did not deserve, this, this difficulty. And he tries to fix it. He goes to Saul. He goes to Samuel. He goes to Jonathan. He goes home to try to get out of the way. But all the while, he continues to worship and lean into God, despite things getting progressively worse for him. The truth is, that too, this too was part of David's task. This too was proclaiming the excellencies of God, his faithfulness to the Lord. This was the path that God was taking him down to prepare him for the throne upon which God would have him sit. Of course, he didn't know what that would look like. All he knew and worried about, and was even, I think you could make the case, panicky, because of the path God was taking him. But the truth is, and I want to say this again, this was too, this was also part of David's task. And I want to say that no matter what circumstances in which you find yourself today, none of us here are being chased by a murderous king this morning. We may feel like your battle is just as real and scary and formidable, but David's was pretty intense. There's a couple things I want you to notice. We saw in Psalm 59, written during the season of David's life, when Saul's thugs are hiding just outside of the window of his house at night, we saw that as scared and freaked out as David was, he still looked to God for protection and committed himself to God's ways no matter what. I want you to notice that although God did not stop permanently Saul from pursuing David, he was in fact providing for him other ways. He caused Saul and his boys to be confused supernaturally. He provided Michael, his, uh, David's loving but ungodly wife, to send him away. And God gave him, and this is the part I want to spend the rest of our time on, God gave him a compassionate, understanding, and committed friend, support outside of his own family, by the way, of, of Samuel, and then his dearest friend, Jonathan. God did not expect David to carry this burden alone. I really, really want to make this point powerful this morning. God, the one we gave our lives to who owns us. 1 Corinthians tells us that we have been bought with a price. We are not our own anymore, right? Therefore, it says, glorify God in your bodies. We are owned by another. 
And it is important that we understand that He is moving us into position for the service and ministry He has for us. He's moving us into position. God, the God who bought us with the price of His Son's blood. He's moving us into position. And these tasks and these positions may be uncomfortable and even terrorizing in our lives. And this isn't unique to David. You could make the case for Jesus experiencing the same thing. Jesus had to surrender his own will, and he said it a half dozen times. We've talked about this. Not my will, but yours be done. To his Father's will. And though the will of his Father was terrorizing, was overwhelming. In fact, Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his arrest, this happens. When Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there and pray. He's talking to the 11 left. He then takes Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed, and he told them, this is Jesus talking, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus, number two in the Trinity. Perfect God, perfect man, never sinning, is given a gift by the Father of companionship. Human support. Jesus, and I want you to, I want, okay, this, the reason I want to labor this one point right now is because there's a lot of people who say, the church is cliquish. Not Carpenter's way, necessarily, but in general. I want you to realize that Jesus had hundreds who considered themselves his followers or disciples. Of those hundreds, he picked 12 to walk closely with him, to pour into their lives night and day. That was very rabbinical. These people would just walk in his dust. They would follow him, and everywhere they went, he would point things out to them. That's how, that's how rabbis taught. Look at the fields. They're white under harvest. Look at that person over there. Look at the guy who's blind from birth. Just looking at things and teaching through life. He picked 12. Of the 12, he chose three to share his pain with. This is not about just gathering for church, everybody getting together and just looking at each other. This is not talking about this person over here and this person in this room. There's a lot of good stuff that has to happen when we gather. Worship of the Lord, the study of Scripture. But we're talking about even Jesus picking out a Jonathan. I want to go back to the story of David for a second. David starts by running to his wife. Makes total sense. But then when that fails, he runs to Samuel, the high priest. But I want you to note that it's not a vow made between Samuel and David that saves him. Samuel was a religious spiritual leader to David, a guide, but it is Jonathan that he pours his heart out to. It's Jonathan. And so it is with us today. The work of the Lord is hard, Scripture tells us. Our task, whether it be parenting or witnessing or living faithfully or, or, or being good at work, it can be scary and tiring and it can feel unjust. And yes, we trust God as David did in Psalm 59. But God has actually given us a gift beyond ourselves. And I believe that because Satan has lost our souls when we accepted Jesus Christ, this is the place that he now works within the church. It's each other. It's the gift of companionship and friendship. 
Hebrews chapter 10, 23 to 25 says this, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we, we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways now to motivate each other to acts of love and good works. I want to pause and I want to separate those. He starts by saying, God is faithful to keep his promises to you. Your soul is secure. The Holy Spirit lives within you and he's going to guide you and direct you. But now that God is going to keep his promise, I want you to understand that we now need to think of ways to motivate each other to love and good deeds. Now we need to concentrate on each other. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of, the, of his return is drawing near. As things get more difficult, it is that human companionship that, of, of brothers and sisters in Christ that we need that Satan tries to disrupt with. 1 Thessalonians 5.1, encourage one another and build each other up. Galatians 6.2, share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. Or how about Ecclesiastes 4, written also by Solomon? Two people are better off than one. And look, I know that this is read at so many weddings, and it's, it's fine at a wedding if, if they're two believers. But this is actually written as a general statement to the, to the worshipers of God. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can a one be warm alone? A person that's standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. I, I, I want you to realize, and, and look, we have learned to concentrate so much on, on salvation and doctrine, and, and that's fine. It's a very great place to start. All right, I, I'm going to rabbit trail here I, I, because it's really important. And you can disagree with this. This is my opinion. Satan knows that our souls are lost. So he wants to make it about doctrine now. If we agree on salvation, now he wants us to be arguing about things like tongues and how we take an offering and whether communion is open or closed. That's what he wants us to debate about because it keeps us from relating together. It keeps us from finding community even within a local church. He wants us to argue about whether or not we're a follower of Arminius or Calvin. Nobody cares except the people fighting about that. And I'd like to say that he's been even more effective in the church in this culture because now he's offered us superstar Christians, people that we align ourselves with because we like their preaching. And look, they might be fine people, from John MacArthur to, uh, to Beth Moore to, uh, I mean, name your person, great people, wonderful people, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels. You grab your person. The problem is, these are not people you can count on. If all we do is debate doctrines, and all we do is sit around and, and debate over this or that, or we never spend time looking and saying, how are you, or I'm hurting. We can't do what David did. We get together, and, and you could be diagnosed with cancer, and somebody says, how are you? And we say, I'm fine, which is a lie. You see, this community that God gave us is supposed to bear each other's burdens and celebrations. 1 Corinthians 13 is actually written to the church, not to married couples. It celebrates victories, and it mourns when others mourn. One of the Bonin girls started driving this week. Some of you are going to find out because your cars are dented in today. 
you poor kids, my kids are gone. I have to start. <laughs> don't, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> Just about the time she gets good, there's another Bonin going to drive. We're giving her her own parking lot. <clears throat> the, the, the fact is, you guys, we celebrate graduation in a few weeks. Kids who have been discipled. We celebrate Josh and Allie Ferguson coming back, growing up in our church, Josh, and giving his life to Christ, and then being discipled, and we sent him off to school, and now he's serving as one of our missionaries, and he's coming back, and on the Sunday they're back in a couple weeks, they're going to dedicate their baby, and they're going to baptize a member of their family. We celebrate with them. But you realize a month and a half ago we were terrorized with them because Allie was in trouble after the birth. I mean, this, this is what we do as a church, and Satan wants to keep us from doing this thing Jonathan and David had. He wants us to keep from building each other up and encouraging each other beyond doctrinal disputes. There are some doctrines, listen, that we don't dispute, they just are. Salvation through faith in Christ alone, through an act of grace alone. That anyone, no matter who you are, can come to Christ. The Trinity, it is non-negotiable. I want to double down on that in case you didn't hear me clearly. The God of the Bible is a Trinity God. Well, it's not that big a deal. It is an enormous deal. We can debate about it at a different time. But we cannot bend on that. But who cares if you speak in tongues in your prayer closet? I, I should. That's between you and God. If when we get to heaven, we find out that it's real, I'm going to say I was open to it. If we find out it's not real, we're going to giggle for the first million years. You were ordering pasta. It doesn't matter. It's between you and God. You walk with God. And then we come together. This is family. It's, it's actually more important than family. You see, blood family, that line will end when you go home. But the blood family and the blood of Christ doesn't end. It doesn't end. Because the blood of Jesus is not only going through our veins now, but it's poured over us and we're forgiven in that. And the truth is that the, the work of the Lord is hard. Men and women, Satan wants us running this race alone. He wants you running alone. And it's not true that you just need more faith in God and you'll be fine. It's not true. That's why he gave us each other. It is a gift. God gave David human support. The Father gave Jesus human support. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron. So a friend sharpens a friend. We need a godly human support, so God gave us each other. Regular worshiping and being reminded of how this story ends. But also, inside of a large group, there has to be a smaller group, a Jonathan, a Peter and James and John in your life, that you can share your most private thoughts and fears and doubts with. God has gifted us with human love and support, but the truth is you've got to seek it, you've got to find it, and you've got to work for it. You've got to be vulnerable, and you've got to be willing to bind the wounds of someone else. Inside of this group are little groups that God is creating, and our job as a church is to offer you opportunities to find those. That's why the ladies had an event last Thursday night. That's why we had an event, guys, on Saturday. That's why we have not, that Bible studies has social events because we also want you to build those sparks. There are people, and you know this, sometimes you just connect with people. That's a God gift. But you've got to choose to jump in. You've got to choose to be vulnerable. You've got to choose to love if you're going to experience that. And that is where I think Satan does his best work in the church. He gets us thinking 
that it's more doctrine, more debates, more Christian stuff. And while those things all may be important, that is the foundation upon which we build spiritual houses. Spiritual houses are built when we learn to love each other like Christ loved us. You were not called or created or recreated to walk alone or not even alone with Jesus. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. I started saying something a minute ago. I'm almost done. but Satan has given you phenomenal books and writers and preachers and musicians with which to fill your spiritual cup. You don't, you don't, even, you don't need to come to church anymore for that. And I think Satan has got us in these large, huge... And, and Look, this is going to sound like an attack, and I guess it is, but you can disagree. But a spiritual conference is not enough because this isn't a doctrinal discussion. It's a relational discussion. It is a wonderful thing. And in this past year, I've had people come in who are, who are visiting, and they'll, they'll tell me that they belong to a church in... I don't, I don't want to get too specific, but in so-and-so a place. And I'm like, oh, did you live out there? No, I just joined online. That's not being part of the church, friends. You may love Matthew Chandler, but you don't know Matthew Chandler, and he doesn't know you. You may get a great doctrinal treatise from John MacArthur, but he doesn't know you, and you don't know him. And if David had just said, well, Samuel anointed me, it wouldn't have solved his problem with Saul. He needed somebody to protect him and to watch his back. We are in a spiritual battle, and we've got to interact, and Satan has removed the beauty of the local church. I just don't believe that this was ever supposed to be ten and 12,000 people. You can't know each other in ten or 12,000 people. You can't hold your pastor accountable. And he can't hold you accountable. You need to see your shepherd walking in this community. You need to see him relating to his wife. You need to see him raise his kids so that you can watch his back and he can watch yours. We need each other. And not from a distance, but from up close. And what we've done is, is we've turned this into some sort of theology conversation every day. Go to seminary if you want that, but there is nothing like the local church. Nothing. There is great preachers and great musicians, way better than you'll ever get, except for Chad, in this building. I mean, we have a lot of great stuff, but we're not as great as the most powerful, high-paid Christian preachers out there. It was never about high-powered preachers. It was about the body of Christ walking together we have been called to do our thing here except for the iversons who are called to do their thing in dallas but we're here and it's not an accident i know some of you are trying to get out of here don't get out of here this is your task and we gather because we do our task together you on one side of lovekin and me on another side of lovekin and some of you wherever you are doing your task but that is your task and we come together to build each other up in our task some of you are retired some of you are just getting into the workforce, and we do this as a family. But within the family, it's broken down into small groups because we need people with skin on, and that's a gift from the Lord. That is a gift from the Lord. You are on target to fulfill your task, and I know it feels lonely at times, and it feels scary at times, 
But I, I got to tell you, in the body of Christ, according to the Scripture, you are either giving or taking. There is no neutral ground. If you are a healthy if you are in a healthy relationship with the Lord, you are either giving or you are taking. There's no neutral. I'm just hanging out. That doesn't exist in the body of Christ unless you're self-serving. And by the way, if you're just neutral in the family of God, then you are taking. And there's nothing wrong with taking, but you must identify yourself as a taker. Financially, take benevolence, uh, the benevolence offering, for example. We take an offering every time we have communion so that we can help those in need. And it has been interesting in my 13 years because we try to help those in need who are middle-class people as well. And every one of them go, oh, you know, it'll be fine. We don't really need this help. I'm going, you do need the help, and we're giving you the help. If you want to give it back, give it in the offering. But on behalf of the church, we love you. Here's payment for your car. You just lost your job. Or your wife just got cancer, and you're driving to, you're driving to uh, Houston three times a week. We're going to help pay for gas. Yes, but that's for people in need. You're in need. Think about that for a second. Think about that. Our pride says, oh, I'll figure it out. I'll just put it on the credit card. What if the church body can help you pay that gas bill? Now, don't everybody call tomorrow, please. <laughs> but do, do you understand? I'm not mad. I'm just impassioned. I want you to understand that everybody in this room at one time or another is in need. It may be help with your marriage. It may be help with finances. It may be help emotionally or spiritually or with a job. And we take care of each other to the best of our ability. But you've got to be willing to take help. And when you're not in that position, you are a giver. You're a giver. You look at for somebody to minister to. You reach out across the aisle. Or it's made aware to you. God makes you aware. Or, or, or you find out in Bible study through prayer requests, but you find out somebody's hurting and you reach out to them. You give. That's what we do. There's no neutral people. You're either a giver or a receiver. And look what Satan has done to remove that. Look what he's done. He's made us so proud we don't even want to be a David. This guy is going to be the king of Israel, and he is freaking out, as he should. And look what God surrounded him with. And Jesus Christ was about to die on the cross for our sins, and he was freaking out. Oh, you can't say that. I have been in theological discussions where people talk, the blood from his forehead wasn't because of the strain of what was about to happen physiologically for him. It was the strain of carrying the sins of the world. Jesus, the man, is going, Dad, I don't want to do this. I don't even like these people. He didn't say that. I added that. They can't even stay awake, Father. They can't even stay awake. Take this cup from me. There's got to be another way. That's what he says. There's got to be another way. Does he sound like a person? A human? But not my will, yours be done. And then he goes back over, and three times they're asleep, and he wakes them up, and he says, are you sleeping again? And he says, go ahead and sleep. And he says, no, time for sleep is over. They're coming. And he wakes them up, and he says, come with me. He takes them with him, and they walk over, and then he has to protect them. Jonathan was imperfect. He misunderstood his father, and Peter and James and John were imperfect. They didn't understand the concept of what was about to happen, but they were still with the people that needed them, and we need to be with each other. That's going to take an investment on your part going to take time and vulnerability and we're going to talk more about that next week we're going to have communion next sunday but before we're going to we're going to go back to a tree that we picked the fruit off of before and we're going to pick more fruit off of it we're going to look at what jesus did in, as a term of relationship and he tells us how to do it so we're going to talk about that because it's really really important you see 
There's never been a pastor alive who didn't want 10,000 people in his church. It's not about 10,000 people. It's about 10 people that love each other. That's what it's about. It's about 10 people that care for each other. 10 people that pray for each other. 10 people that carry each other's burdens and celebrate the victories, that celebrate graduations and births of babies and pray for that family as their kids grow up. It's about weeping with those who weep and celebrating with those who celebrate. I do not believe that Satan has us over a barrel theologically. I don't. There's great, great theology around. Plenty of books. I think he has us over a barrel relationship-wise. So here's your homework for this week. I want you to look around your life, and I want you to ask yourself, who has God put you in proximity of that should be your Jonathan? I'm going to say it because we live in a world that wants so much freedom, and I'm going to say it. Women, it should not be men unless it's your husband. Men, it should not be women unless it's your wife. That's stupid. Okay? You should never share with a woman that's not your wife that you're struggling with lust. That's just not how this works. Oh, come on. We're in the Me Too generation. Hashtag stupid generation, okay? <laughs> if you're being sexually messed with, you need to tell us and we'll kill them. It'll be fine. We're in East Texas. <laughs> but we need to wake up. This country mocked our vice president who had a standard he wouldn't have lunch with another woman. And they're still mocking him, and that's what would have solved a lot of our problems our president has. It just is what it is. And I'm not asking the world to be smart. I'm just asking the church to be smart. So I want you to look around you as you go to Bible study this morning, as you trod through life, as you go to your workplace, who has God put around you? Another believer that you've avoided actually opening your heart to. Or you've been resistant allowing them to open their heart to you. And next week, we will look at that in the New Testament, what that looks like. If I give it to you, you won't show up. So I'm, this is the closest to a cliffhanger. Dun, dun, dun. Do, you, do you all understand what I'm talking about here? Yes, sir. Do you all agree that we need a Jonathan? Yes, yes. We do. Men, some of you already have one around you. You just need to turn its focus a little more to the Lord. Guys you go hunting with, how about instead of a second bottle of whiskey, you open the word? <laughs> We're hunting, preacher. I know, that's why I'm a pastor. Let's close in prayer. God, make us like David and, and Jonathan. Make us like Jesus as we relate to each other. In your name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. Next Sunday, a meeting at 11.